So, uh, what time is it, Joe? Theory time. Theory time. It's also non-theory time, oh. uh, in the sense of Laura Wells non, and you know it, one of the one of the th- one of the things that's at stake in his most recent magnum opus. Um, it's called Non-Standard Philosophy, and he one of the things he engages early on is sort of describing reasons why non-standard is opted over non-philosophy right he he says and partly this is his own fault that it led to so many misinterpretations um and so to make it clearer what's at stake is this uh standard form of of philosophy and he'll describe that in various ways it's kind of what's always been at stake but um you know, there's there's this turn for Orwell um, in the late, I guess in the in the late aughts, where he starts to consider quantum physics and what could be extracted and abstracted from quantum physics outside of its um, model of positivism and what 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 we can learn looking at philosophy. In terms of um, a massive particle, a conce- in terms of a you know set of conceptual corpuscles that can be uh, particularized and made particulate in a a waveform, you know what happens when we superpose philosophy with and under a generic science that can treat it as occasion and symptom and material for um, for this thought experiment, or really he calls it an experiment of thought that undertakes um, in thought what in physics the colliders of particles, to, <laughs> you know, plays in, in, in its own experiments. Okay, I like that. Um, let's let's slow down a little bit um, and maybe try to build, maybe slow down enough that we could launch some kind of non-theoretical particle of our own, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, what... <laughs> so qu- quantum physics presents a, a model of the universe, right? Like, it's proven to be like un- uncannily effective. This is like one of the things I think we were talking about when like we were talking about, you know, m- mathematical knowledge being like kind of un- uncannily able to model the world. Um, and it's, it's, it's made just these astoundingly precise predictions and, and so on. Right. At least this, the standard model of quantum physics. Right. Um, and so it, I, I guess that would be one of my first questions would be about like, you know, do you, to your knowledge, is this one of the valences of non-standard philosophy? It's it's not just like non-standard arithmetic, but maybe you know, a, a 
I don't know. It, it's funny because he seems to be tapping into the logic of the standard model of of phys, you know, of quantum mechanics, right? In a, cer- in a certain way, anyway. Sorry, I, it's sort of a there's a very surface level thing about this word standard, and I guess maybe I was I was hoping that might be a way into kind of like you know what's going on with Laurel's project and what are these what are some of these st- stakes about, um, and just suggesting maybe that some of it might live in this word standard and what we take to be a standard and a standard, you know, not, not just image of thought, but like st- structure of the real or something like that. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how to, how to unpack that entirely, but I think, um, I don't know. There's a, there's a logic of standing or something and, and, of, of conceiving the universe as a standing reserve of energy, maybe from like an ontological point of view that's caught up, the quantum mechanics is still caught up with this kind of like mo- mobilizing the energies of the planet, you know, for benevolent righteous ends on behalf of humanity or something, maybe like, that's the thing. Science doesn't really have any of those second order motives. That's why it's so easily manipulated by, you know, by popular vengeful forces towards other kind of ends, right? It's like, you know, your your science your scientific culture can be good and healthy and wor- work with knowledge in a constructive way, but it's no use if it's stuck in a toxic culture that's doomed doomed to use it for kind of perverse perverse ends. Um, I don't know, just th- just thinking about like the value of knowledge and the role of intellectuals and the people that are that claim to know things on our behalf in our society. I mean, this is something Zizek points out, but it's like, it strikes me as a line of similarity with Laruel and his, you know, his at least, you know, wanting to challenge intellectuals to be, you know, less decisive and more determined or something like that. Right. Like, in you know, in terms of their a- action on behalf of victims and not, not to, not to rush to represent, you know, every, every wounded and victim in history and so forth. But Right. Um, yeah, th- there's something about what Laurel finds in Quantics is a number of things. One, it, um, in the same way that it sort of renovates the macroscopic view of sort of uh, Newton's conception of the universe and is able to to generalize it and, and relativize it, you know, the, what he sees in quantics, what Larwell finds in quantics is a way to look at philosophy outside of its own horizon as outside of its own macroscopic viewpoint, he would say. And to not just introduce the, the microscopic viewpoint, but the, the, the quantic viewpoint, which for him, he finds he abstracts from quantics or what he calls quantics from quantum mechanics, uh, the notion of complementarity of the wave and the, the particle, but also this, um, and he finds this in algebra two, this, this notion of non commutativity or non commutability, uh, between, uh, the, well, in general, the wave in particular, the particle form, but, more crucially between the uh, complementarity of the wave and the particle and the macroscopic corpuscular, right? So, um, and part of what's at stake in non-commutativity is what he earlier or still calls unilateral duality, right? That there is, you know, as 
Uh, he's said already there's a foreclosure of the one to philosophy, which is um, which it which it resists because it pertains to manipulate reversible unities of contraries, right? And so this he finds in both in complementarity paired with non-commutativity a um, an abstract way to discuss a unilateral relation, right? Um, we already find this in Nietzsche, this um, X is distinguished from Y, which does not distinguish itself from X. Uh, we, we find already the history of this unilateral relation. So you, you, you're highlighting two elements, unilater unilaterality and complementarity. You're saying Larwell finds something interesting here in this mathematical or mathematico-physical. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's maybe that's one of the short circuits here is the the fact that it's mathematics, so it's like perfect, almost infinitely precise knowledge. But it's physical, so it's about the real, and it really is this short circuit which kind of causes metaphysical conundrums about quantum physics because it's like things that seem to be accidents of our mathematical apparatus turn out to be necessary. And then subsequently, like essential metaphysical features of reality, at least given some interpretation. Um, but at some level, you got to wonder, like, you know, do you even need the interpretations at all? If that makes sense, right? They function. You can build certain machines. There's a totally instrumental interpretation, as it were, kind of a non-interpretation of it. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe it like maybe that's the other side of the quantum mechanics is that it it kind of forces us to realize that it's you know the self can't be reduced to a totally irrelevant factor um, in the equation, but that your observation introduces variation into the situation or some something like this, right? Like right. this 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 movement, this fluctuation of of time within the organism that permits you know knowledge and learning and encoding of new information that, you know, it partakes in some universal, you know, local to global process that ends up changing, you know, for, compelling the, this, this collapse to a, this resolution of information. I don't know. L learning doesn't just take place in the brain somehow. It's like the spooky operation on the universe. Um, entanglement is also spooky this way. These kind of uncanny effects. I, I, I don't wonder if this some of these overtones are also useful for the philofictional dimension. I'm, I'm yeah, they, I was yeah. I was just about to go there because philofiction is 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 interesting um, from non philosophy's point of view or non standard uh, philosophy's point of view. Philofiction is uh, an invention insofar as fiction and real fictional and real are no longer. Um, you know, reversible, right? They're no longer opposed in a simple uh, duality, but are but become one and the same. Uh, on the other hand, from philosophy's point of view, from from the point of view of standard thought, from the point of view of standard philosophy, um, what's highlighted is the fictional aspect, right? It will be fiction in a old sense for philosophy, insofar as it. Um, one could say it in different ways. Doesn't you know validate these attempts at fiction from its own standard of sufficiency, right? So it 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 
entertains or, or from its point of view, from its, you know, from within its Heraclitian conjunction, its Heraclitian paradigm, it doesn't authorize these types of usages of itself outside of its own domain, outside of its own kingdom. Um, because it, in its repression of the foreclosure of the one, it finds a hostility. It finds a, uh, an aggression from non-philosophy in its claim that there can be some generic science of philosophy that is not under philosophy's own conditions, right? There's a, it's that making contingent that philosophy finds to, uh, to put its will to power in question, right? It's, it, it, well, it, yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I love that. I mean, this is one of the ways of talking about, like, you know, whatever the much heralded end or death of metaphysics. In a way, it's the thing philosophy's been obsessed with, right? In various yes. name, in various names, right? Whether it's the absolute or the arbitrary or the contingent. And I guess this is one of my questions. It's like contingent on what, right? In in quantum mechanics, anyway, the resolution of information's contingent on observations, right? Um, like caref- carefully looking at the world, right? There's almost an implicit scientific methodology that kind of falls out of our of our system. And you could you could ask, you know, are we projecting this somehow into the into the logic of of our, you know, anyway, uh, of our machining of the universe, right? Like, is our methodology part of our image of 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 thinking itself? I don't know. It's sort of hard to it's hard to explain this idea, but it's like this you know, maybe one way to talk about what Deleuze is up to in terms of the image of thought and deconstructing, or at least trying to clarify our assumptions about what it means to think. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That would, that, that would, that would, I guess be one of my questions is like, you know, how, how to, how to relate this possible, this question of almost other minds, other kinds yeah. of mind minds that like that non-standard philosophy kind of implicitly raises um, cause I, what well, I mean, I, I guess it's like, what is the contingency on? And it's not quite on like the subjectivity of language or structure or even like individuals and in societies. It's like, it's contingent on philosophy or something like that contingent on the philosopher. Um, well, well, it's, it's philosophy and the philosopher that become contingent on yes, um, the right. one's foreclosure or the, um, or one could say more generally on the non in Laura Wells sense of non-Euclidean, right. From which it takes its name, this notion of a suspension of a, of a certain postulate. And that's why it's, that's why he will insist upon this, that it's an invention that philosophy from within its own domains can never truly invent. It is merely manipulating um, or rehashing, uh, reversing, redistributing, transcendentals and contraries. Um, And of course he, he links this all the way back to, uh, to Plato. And this is why he will say non-standard has, can also be called non-platonic because, um, and and again, in that strict sense of the non and not in any anti sense, it's not anti-platonic. It's, it's non-platonic in the sense of suspending the postulate whereby being, is king of the transcendentals and the one is always 
sort of circularly linked back to this dialectic of the one and being, which consequently is the one and the multiple, et cetera. That dialectic laid out in the Parmenides um, has to be bracketed, put between right. parentheses, as he says, in order to yeah. in order to unleash philosophy from a primitive or primordial ontological matrix. Because that's what's at stake too. He will talk about non-ontology as you know, either the quantics of philosophy or this generic non-standard version of, uh, of philosophy. And it always comes back to the eminence of the one, right? So whereas you brought up Deleuze, whereas Deleuze was undertaking in his investigations of the image of thought, a transcendental empiricism, as he calls it, which I think is a beautiful phrase that deserves unpacking, by the way. Um, <clears throat> Laruel wants to suspend the transcendental, which is always in these mixtures of eminence and transcendence, and develop what he calls an eminental or idemonental. Yeah, yeah, and that's where idempotence uh, uh, okay. comes in. And, to and totally, let's 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 slow down here just for just for a minute because I think you're right. We should we should try to unpack transcendental empiricism before we sure like deturn it right like so i i guess the the thought i would say and this is again connecting back the contingency the the philosopher's contingency has to do with the encounter that forces his thought to, yes. in, to forces something new into the order or cycle of his thinking right like yes and so it, it's like in this trans differentiation when philosophy almost suspends certain axioms and is able to heal or fold or learn you know to to multiply itself, right? When philosophy, I don't know, this this would be one of the ways of thinking, this like rigorous decoding, is it becomes a deterritorialization where there's like, you know, mul- multiplicities where, you know, you thought there were just singular things, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, something shifts in the ground beneath you. And this is, and, and, your, and your very image of thought is like suspended or some, like something new is able to happen once you, suspend some of the assumptions take away what you you know you it's hard to learn what you already know you know what i mean so like you, there's there's almost a zen thing here of clearing away all the assumptions and the things that have that have gotten in the way right um and that sounds a lot like heidegger develops this you know clearing and withdrawing and disclosing the cycle of aletheia as he would call it um this unveiling and but yeah at, at best what can it do but like make possible the encounter i guess just to loop it loop it back around and oh like, yeah that's that's right you know so but this this would be the point about transcendental empiricism it's you know it's it's not that we are but not that numbers are arbitrary or something but that like the thought that forces our encounter with number numbers and numbering and counting that that this structure is itself you know like I don't know, accountable in the last instance or something like we can, we can, you know, there's, I, I don't know. It is like, it is obviously an arbitrary structure, you know, at some level, right? right? Like, or, or an assignment of elements to slots in a structure. Yeah. It's only certain, it's only certain levels of it that are like necessary, right? The contingency, um, I don't, I don't know. There well, is a fundamental, there's a fundamental contingency or something around, around knowledge in general or whatever. It, but. Yeah. I mean, I, to put it in a way that 
Simondon might resonate with, you know, transcendental empiricism, as you laid it out, it is this modeling and meta-modeling of thinking, of images of thinking, and and it's those images of thinking that have to be submitted to a, uh, well, for Deleuze, it's, it is what the process he calls learning, right? That that it, it can't be subsumed in a dialectic of of pure knowledge or absolute knowledge. It has to be um, in order to take itself to the limit and of what it is capable. It has to be uh, eminently sort of imp- um, involved with, with learning. Um, and learning goes by way of the unconscious, which gets us back to what you were talking about, the encounter and the, and also the, the violence of, of thinking. Um the which give rise to these these images these topological planes um so the mapping of those planes uh, qua concepts qua ideas is the very stuff of transcendental empiricism right i mean it's in other words the the problem is the object of a of a science in itself and I, I would suggest that this is where we're close to Laruel in a certain way to generic science, but he would say it's different. It's like it's about democratizing the science or something so that it doesn't only belong to philosophers like Deleuze or something like this, right? Well, um, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, Laruel has a very um, – he has a – it's not a love-hate relationship uh, with Deleuze. There's – To be honest, I find it more of a um, there's there's both a sibling rivalry and a kind of anxiety of influence, right? So a lot of the times when Deleuze is targeted um, with Lara Well, there there is a kind of um, I don't want to just call it an envy, but there is a there is a sense in which he 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 initially noticed that in his first sort of in his publishings in the seventies when he's taking up Derrida and Deleuze and trying to hybridize them and crossbreed them. All he was doing was a kind of, um, at worst an intellectual masturbation exercise of just kind of throwing these together or maybe doing what Deleuze talks about as buggery, right? As, as though he were merely, um, buggering these philosophy philosophers and therefore, not doing anything, not inventing, not truly inventing or creating, but um, kind of um, mixing, as I'll call it. He's in the end of the day, he's he's mixing signifiers or texts or or you know regimes of signs, and that leads him to want to formalize his own activity. Why is it that this is the limits to which he can aspire, to which philosophy can aspire? And it's within that vein that he hypothesizes um, he wants to undertake this not an, not an overcoming of philosophy, but a, but an undercoming for it that um, presents novel possibilities that weren't that weren't legal or conceivable or maybe possible, effectuable in I, philosophy. I love that. Okay, so what is invisible even from the point of transcendental empiricism? What is this imminental? What did you call it? Yeah, let's let's. So let's- yeah, that's that's 
modeling on the word transcendental, um, which already implies now not in a Kantian sense, but in its etymology, um, one could say a privileging of transcendence, um, or at least its reversibility with eminence. Um, and this is Simon Doan's critique when it always comes back to philosophically asking, you know, is like, is the trans individual imminent or transcendent to the individual? And it's like, well, it's, it's both, but neither, right? It's not there. So in the same sense for, for Laura, well, the imminental, um, which is he'll, talk about the difference between radical eminence and absolute eminence, right? Absolute eminence being in the last instance tied to philosophical authority or the transcendent in some approximation. It's this radically eminent notion of superposition via the mathematical uh, modeling of the imaginary number and idempotence. This is what he gets from algebra. And I think that we could pause here and talk a little bit about these mathematical concepts. Because um, they'll also talk about eminence as idempotence, right? This portmanteau word of idempotence and eminence. <clears throat> That's interesting. Id eminence. Yeah, idempotence. So I D E M M. Yeah. Yeah. And idem in, in Latin means same, right? Um, and one, you know, Laura Wells, one of his tropes is to talk about being and thinking are the same, this famous, um, expression of Parmenides, um, are the same as thinking right. and be being. So I, I dim and it's, it's the same without the dialectic of, um, being a nothingness or being, or mul the multiple and the one, et cetera, right? There's a, it's a, maybe a non-transcendental identity function, like or like one that proceeds by way of eminence rather than the transcendental or something. Yeah, it's exactly it's it's in one in the last instance, as he might say. Um, it's well, this is the thing, right? It's it's um, I for him, idempotence. It. it, it comes back to the eminence of the stranger subject as he'll call it right generic humanity or the one in person it's this question of um a superposition of states through a uh through a vector that is um it's not, it's neither the succession of additions, right? Nor, uh, an all a whole it's, it, it, it pertains to the undulatory phenomenon of the wave, right? It's, it's, it's that, um, that conception that he wants to bring into his non-ontology into, into his generic way of thinking. It's a generic eminence. Yeah, no, this is, I mean, this is fantastically beautiful and like musical, right? Like, and I guess this is like where I have a philosophy of music question, which is like, 
it would be really cool if we could pedagogically say like, here is the relation between vibration and cognition that Laura Well is articulating mm-hmm. or at, the, at the very least suggesting implying might exist. I don't know. It's like, it's a fascinating suggestion, but like, I, I don't know. It's it immediately going to quantum mechanical mathematical operators. Right. But I, I think the thing is, you know, like the, the things you're talking about, idempotence, this is just an algebraic notion, right? Yes. This is just a, it's a calculative identity um, that anyway, I don't know. This is like one way to, you know, anyway, I'm not, I'm not sure how to say it, but it's like, there's a pure algebraic version of most of these concepts that doesn't right. bring in the, the weirdness of superposition. Um, but superposition uses those concepts in order to d- define its structure. Right. Um, and I think something, yeah, can I, can I jump I, in just real quick? Please, I, please. Yeah. I, I think yeah, that yeah. what's interesting about idempotence is that he takes his model of idempotence as a plus a equals a, and he, he opposes that abstract formalization to someone like Fichte who uh, wants to say, you know, I plus I equals I or self plus self equals self in this dialectic of the self and the non-self that will constitute a transcendental ego. For him, uh, the transcendental ego is not imminent enough or is too absolute, right? There's this radical, imminental stranger subject. Uh, he'll talk about it. He'll talk about, well, in the odds he talked about um, with the stuff on democracy and his stuff on uh, generalized psychoanalysis, non-analysis. He describes this um this eminence of the ego and the stranger right where the uh the stranger is ego in the last instance um it's it's that form of superposition that leads to um the non-counting of the idempotence of generic humanity right. That we all partake in. Um, so it's, so I think that what's interesting with superposition is that he's actually saying he, and he says elsewhere that, you know, philosophy has, has been aware of vibrations and undulations and waves and, uh, oscillations. And one of the sources he, uh, comes back to is Fichte. Fichte is very important for, for understanding Larwell, especially the early non-philosophy, right? He, he, explicitly says that um, non-philosophy sort of takes back up the science of knowledge, Fichte's science of knowledge in his way of proceeding. It just, it radically diverges outside of this uh, ecological, phenomenological aspect of, uh, of the subject, of, of, of a transcendent subject. That would be a synthesis of uh, self and not self. So it's that's where imminent superposition, idempotence, is like radically distinguished from a from a type of philosophical idempotence that would be a dialectic of of the I. So you you're. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to understand like like what makes a plus a equals a different than. I plus I equals I. Oh, well, cause we are and not, we are not our self, right. And the, we are not, uh, 
sort of a hole, an ecological hole at any given time, right? I mean, you find this in Deleuze, thinking is what fractures, you know, in a million fold uh, the eye and there's larval subjects, right? That um, thinking is this fractal fracturing of the eye that doesn't constitute a whole except abstractly as an abstract person. So we are not the abstract philosophical I in the dialectic of I plus I equals I, you know, that's a, that's a transcendent but it, version. But it's, but like read backwards, right? It's like, I don't know. I'm trying to understand. It's like, it's this principle of explosion, the way a mind contains the multiplicity of its past in the form of memory mm-hmm. and the, you know, even more infinite multiplicity in the form of the future, the projected existence, you know, whatever. I don't know. And this is like, you know, uh, you could think of memory as like a, anyway, I don't know, but like we, we, there is this, like you're saying, this multiplication of the individual mm-hmm. and it, and it does get resolved back into like a, what, like a, a, a unity. Yes. That's, um, that's, that's, that's the problem. It's, but, it's unitary. But you're and- saying, yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. And and it's it's that the the Fichtean formula can be genericized, made generic through its interpretation of quantic undulatory phenomena, right? So the quantic uh, view of waves in the specific sense in which Larwell understands it. Um, the I plus I equals I would be a corpuscular formula where there could be an isolated corpuscle of the self or of the eye in a transcendent sense, macroscopically, right? Whereas A plus A equals A, you're saying is a, a, a wave composition. It's the generic way of phrasing it because A does no longer represents a self or an eye. Um, it, in any sense, it's just, it's a mere stripping away of that, of that content. And, um, we are not the same in any transcendent sense with that formula, yet that formula is an abstract way of describing eminent superposition, right? Because that- so is 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 the is the non-philosophical reduction, if we can frame it this way, making him a kind of a a non a non-husserl, right? Um, are we like we're alighting or cutting out of the frame? Is it the philosopher's sense of self, his his ego, like their personal preferences of the philosopher? Is this what is subtracted from the philosophical material to prepare it for non philosophy? How would you how would you say? Yeah, uh, that's that's interesting, right? Because it's less the philosopher's own ego, and it's the ego form in thought the ego form of thought, the egological, um, or he'll say ego theological form of, of philosophy. That, that's one of the, uh, one could say it's, I mean, he, like, for example, in non-philosophy, you know, the philosophy isn't merely taken as material in one go. It undergoes several phases and it's, part of what gets suspended and isolated uh, are the different um, forms of transcendence it harbors, which uh, for him is, you mentioned unity and that's one of them, but there's also the um, alterity is, is 
is one of the transcendentals, the, the notion of the other, right? And, and the problem is that the ego form of thought is uh, at best particulate, yet without complementarity with the wave, and at worst, in its most macroscopic forms, in its most standard forms, you might say, it's, it's corpuscular. It is, um, one could say, a like ether, it is a ad hoc stand-in uh, that doesn't inscribe within itself its ad hoc status, right? It, it, it functions as a concept yeah. in the most banal sense, um, and I think that that's where Laurel and Simondon share an interest because uh, while Simondon focuses on ontogenesis, he wants to say concepts uh, can't can't go there, right? They, so, so this are, is this is again, yeah. this is like a crit- a critique of the individual, in other words, as a and, as a corpuscle of thought, right? Does that make sense? That the individual and that yeah. that and that corpuscle being like it's contingent that we're choosing that mode of analysis and we'll, it will naturally end up with, you know, organized bodies. If we're look, you know, organized massive bodies, if we're looking at the corpuscular level, right. But if we look, if we look at the level of fields, we'll only see waves. Um, is that, is it, I mean, it's almost plain of eminent stuff, right? Uh, oh, definitely. Definitely. It is. It is, uh, it is, you know, Plane of eminence for Laruel. He wants to say he's generalized it. That's not important for this context. I think what's important for the the context is, you know, for Simondon, the process of individuation of the uh, potentialization and actualization of information in amplitudes of internal resonance. That this is, or you know, we can call it becoming whatever ontogenesis, uh, sort of is the wave form that isn't identified uh, isn't simply the same as its particles or its corpuscles, which are of course macroscopic. And, and um, for Laruel, he makes this interesting thing where he turns to light and he wants to say that, um, that uh, shorter wavelengths have more energy um, sort of per unit yeah. of space, and and therefore they can perturb these larger waves, right? And so he wants to kind of suggest that um, that non-philosophy can, um, as this more intense wave, can disrupt or perturb philosophy. I love it in, in a, I, in I a way this. that yeah, yeah. in a way whose interaction. Um, doesn't involve a, it, it doesn't, he, he makes this, it's not felt, it's not suffered by, it's not, um, it doesn't even, it, it's what he calls a minimum of wrong to philosophy and science, right? That, that non-standard thought or non-philosophy as this more intense wave interacts yet doesn't just, it, it perturbs without unsettling. It perturbs without even being noticed by the the larger wave. Um, no, I, yeah. I, I I I love that. It, it makes me think of 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 all things art and the creative act. That's and I feel like I 
I feel like I see a connection between non-philosophy and like modern art. I, I believe he um, wants that. I believe he wants to assert that because non-standard philosophy presents the ability to invent, it has kaleidoscopically fractal modes of aesthetic or non-aesthetic yeah, yeah, registers. But, but totally. So, but I, I think like in this case, right? Like the the structure of the waves, right? Like it's gonna be. I mean, the by definition, noise is like non-periodic, right? Like, in, in other words, it's actually like somewhat challenging, like mathematically, like or at least awkward to kind of construct a, a true noise, right? Because you have to like create some non-periodic repetition of the wave um, that like that that is that does interrupt in some like non-linear kind of fashion, and like it's. I mean, it strikes me that's like kind of modernism in music was like the, that this, this introduction of non-periodic cycles, um, that, that like, you know, truly introduced a new order of transformation into, you know, kind of the, the logical, the algebraic machinery of, of the musical, the musical work. Right. Um, anyway, I don't know, just this, this thought about like noise versus like pure tones right in general music's composed of these pure tones but if we want you know but they're all they're all like some derivation from pure you know it's it's in fact only in the modern age that we can like create both true noise and pure tones we can synthesize pure tones right um although you can get pretty close right with with some instruments right but like um but we can also create these pure noises by like mathematically constructing white noise or something is that does that make sense it's like and it's by building these non-periodic wave repetitions, right? That repeat at intervals that aren't like I don't know. It's difference in repetition, if that makes sense, right? Like in a in a in a way that's kind of anarchic. Um, anyway, you know, just, this, just, just got me. This, yeah, this yeah. reminds me a little bit back to our discussion of the I plus I equals I, this corpuscular uh, nature of the self, and. Larwell describes what he calls a quantic cogito. Um, and I think that Deleuze is very close to this without calling it this. When he talks about the cogito is, um, you know, it's fractured by time. There are, it has larval selves. Um, so it's sort of sprawling and swarming with these uh, selves. And that I think is, uh, the quantic cogito is is at this level of, um, you know, he he doesn't call them thought thought particles, but he does talk about um, thought amplitudes, and one could assert that these amplitudes of thought are traversed by particles, but all of which are in superposition right in this in this generic way and i think he wants to establish that possibility for seeing philosophy in this way taken and reworked but respected right and yeah and and without destroying the like what's suspended is not philosophy what's destroyed is not philosophy what's destroyed is the macroscopic corpuscular form which too is serves as or is analogically related and inscribed yeah, within yeah, the yeah. material. So there's a. This is why I think what's interesting about Larwell's minimum circle uh, is this. It 
is this detour from reworking philosophy from within itself for itself to this uh, potential reworking outside of it. And that's where it's, that's where it's both scientific and artistic, right? Because it's, it leads to an artistic effect. It has effects of, of art as a way of, um, well, this is where the philofiction comes back in, right? Because fiction, if we take it in a general sense of, of, of a form of, of novel, it, it, it has aspects of that are artistic, that are literary, um, that involve a transformation of affect and concept and percept. Yeah, no, I, 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 I love this notion of the amplitudes of thought and I, 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 I guess I would, I would ask this question, I, I would at least anyway, I, I would want to try to frame something about language here. And I like that you pointed to fiction and, and I, I, I mean, I think trying to move beyond a dialectic of fiction and reality, right? Like, I mean, I think one thing would be about, you know, like what is a text capable of, you know, I think this is maybe what textual machines might be kind of investigating. Yes, right. Um, and kind of the, the book amplitude, you know, what happens when you tweak all the knobs and re remix the strata of the book rather than just try to structurally change it or something. Right. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think there is, at least you've pointed to this, like this kind of shift and maybe it's like part of thinking itself of, of like a shift from archeology span to like futurology, right? Like where we shift from kind of studying history to acting, you know, and I don't know, Nietzsche has the beautiful thing about, you know, every war being, at least in the modern era, being, you know, about the study of history. If we didn't, in other words, if we didn't put people through this administration of perception throughout their whole lives that involves the study of history in the world, if we didn't construct this huge system of traces that binds us to a shared culture, you know, our, our, amplitudes of thought wouldn't reach the scale of global destruction. You know, if we didn't, if we organized it differently, more molecularly, not that we don't know, don't need global history or, you know, planetary organization. Right. Um, but they can, they can be achieved a lot of ways and, um, they don't have to be powered through resentment. I guess that, that was, that, that's, I guess one of the things I'm thinking about, right? Like, is there's, you know, the amplitude of thought sounds Spinozist to me. This is almost like the most purely Deleuzian or something like that idea that I think I've heard because it's like, it's the resonance frequency of the crystal of time, right? They can, they can unlock onto Genesis and let, let something new into the world. Right. They can give birth, they can give birth to art as a planetary machine. I mean, it's a, this is, I feel like where guitar is always going, right? Like how do we unlock, you know, these, these amplitudes necessary to think ethico aesthetically about, you know, planetary culture about global institutions, about these, this administration of the regime of perception that we all undergo throughout our whole lives, this, this mediation of everything. I don't know. And it's, it's easy to fall back into like a, everything is, you know, receded into its representation. The world is, you know, so many spectacles and, and, and games. And I think this is where stoicism comes from to some degree about like, let me be indifferent to the, the gain and loss of the kind of in, in, insane values of the world. Um, Cause I, I, you know, you, you can't live that way. Right. Um, or, or else you'll, you know, I don't know. You, I, 
it's the, some of the, you have the unconscious, you deserve stuff, right? Like we're, right. we're, we're, we're going to be able to reach the amplitudes of thought we're able to reach. Um, but I, I, anyway, I just love that idea of it being like a cognitive machine. And I think that underscores the generic kind of fully imminent material aspect of it that, you know, uh, there aren't some transcendental limits to your thought. You know, it's all plays out through the imminent, you know, like continuation in the last instance of, of the amplitude that you're already writing, you know? Yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing about thought amplitudes is if we go back to his um, understanding, he, he talks about the philosophical logos as a, as a flash, right. As, as this uh, flash of light. And so the question of, the macroscopic amplitudes being able to be uh, perturbed without being disturbed by these more intense uh, amplitudes of thought. Um, there's something interesting, this nonviolent violence of, of, of thinking in terms of the superposition of, of the waveform. And, um, to go back to Spinoza, I mean, yeah, there's there's something. I mean, Spinoza himself, in I believe the third book of the Ethics, talks about a, a fluctuation of the soul, right, wherein we associate negatively uh, certain things uh, with with actually you know positive thoughts. This this sort of yoking together of this oscillation, this extreme oscillation from uh, the good to the bad, and I think that you know this part of it is is the the way in which the sad passions can yoke themselves to all sorts of um, affirmative ideas, the active joys, and and thereby kind of thereby kind of like anchor them in a certain way, or lead to this, as he calls it, this the seesawing back and forth from um, positive to negative, joyful to sad uh, passions. So it's it's the question for Spinoza, right? Then becomes how do we uh, how do we sh- how do we shift amplitudes such that those inferior amplitudes aren't uh, disturbing, aren't more intense, and thereby perturbing um, these good vibes. One could say, right? These these good vibrations. Right. No, I mean from Laruel's perspective, like Spinoza almost has this toxic positivity, you know what I mean? And I, and I can see why he calls it naive, it be, right? It's naive. Yeah. Right. Like it's, you know, it does, it does seem naive in the, from a certain perspective, right. Or at least to just to, con, con, to continually fix on like the bright light of the philosophical logos and to try to live on the plane of eminence as though it were solid earth. And it's not, right. you know, um, it's, it's a, it's a, a a way front, you know what I mean? Well, this is why um, this is also why Laruel critiques, you know, Deleuze and Guattari and what what is philosophy when they crown Spinoza the Christ of philosophers. You know, Laruel kind of is like, well, then can't argue with Spinoza. He's he's the Christ. But you know, if you think of like the Sermon on the Mount, um, or just Jesus asking Christ asking he who has cast the first stone, there's something naive there too there is there is something where the christ image of spinoza like rarefies his naivete into a into a principle um but you know let's be clear for laura well he uses this term naive because he indicates therein uh, a certain sufficiency 
Um, and this is philosophy's own decisional matrix, its own self-legitimating, self-validating um, authority. Right. And it's, it, right. it's belief I, that it can and, manipulate yeah. contraries, et cetera, that it can. Totally. You know. And, and like, it, it, yeah, just to underscore what you're saying about naivete, it's like, it's, it's, Spinoza is acute enough to realize that philosophical light is not enough to save us and that we need, you know, brave people to also stand up when they see things and, and do things on behalf of victims in the world. Right. Like it is, Spinoza is not a pacifism or something. You know? No, that's true. I mean, uh, it, in his, in his, even in his earliest texts on the improvement of the understanding, he's, he's, uh, he, he realizes that the end or one of the ends is towards the general goodwill, the general welfare. And so that's what the understanding has to, that's why it has to be improved, right? It has to become a collective endeavor. It has to be a, collective assemblage of enunciation one could say um otherwise it's mere masturbatory um individualism it it doesn't have if it does, if it's not connected back to the the collective and the trans individual it's a it's a mere intellectual exercise and not an actual improvement of the understanding right and i i, I mean i guess just for and again to underscore the thing about superposition in fields right it's it's not at some level as though there are there is some you know i, I don't i don't know how to say it like for spinoza there is a hard and fast distinction between the body and the mind right and it is important that that you're not just you know locked in one you know um, and that you, you, in order to maximize either one, you have to set up a connection and superposition between them. Maybe we could right, say, right, right. That's that's uh, an interesting way to talk about what's generally known as his parallelism. You know, to think about the parallel as superposition, um, and to suspend the postulate of parallel lines in Euclid. Right. There's uh, lest lest we forget that Spinoza modeled the ethics on a you know, Euclidean type of demonstration. Uh, I think that's where Laruel would, would go. Um, it's, it's, he doesn't bring up Spinoza often. That's something interesting to me. If it's Spinoza, he's conflated with Nietzsche Deleuze. Um, in most cases, I'm sure he talks about. Right. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Cause from a certain perspective, he's like, <laughs> he has come closest to Spinoza of all the philosophers, like Laruel as philosopher or something, you know, in terms of like being just about how do we unlock the limits of the powers of thought, you know what I mean? And this is like, this is utterly Spinoza's. This is why Spinoza is the North Star. Yes. Um, why he's Polaris in the sky and we're just like down here looking up is because he seems so purely empowered by this problem continuously yeah. you know and he's built his whole engine ar around the liberation of human power and and the and human freedom um and it's just such a glorious expression of of, hu of humanism and of course it seems naive in a fallen world right but well it's interesting that you know he doesn't um he doesn't credit spinoza with inspiring him with this but his coinage this portmanteau term uh, of a of an or axiom and of the or axiomatic in in thought could could be again traced back potentially to the ethics um, 
in its usage in its mobilization of axioms, but it's but he credits it to the you know not just the mathematical basis, but the the scientific um, drive toward what could say teleology, but towards this grand unified theory of everything, right? The um, that physics and quantum physics and relativity seek to to uncover. So, but that's positively in terms of positivism. I mean, for um, for non-standard philosophy's goal is instead a you know general theory of um, philosophy and other knowledges, right? Such that um, philosophy is no longer in its primordial um, jealousy of and warmongering toward science and its attempt to found the sciences or become science in some pseudo um, logical analytical way you know it philosophy is no longer no longer has to burden itself with this envy this prime this primordial envy of science which is at base uh, theological religious right because it wants to emulate science such that it can uh, you know fantasize or illusorily uh, believe in a its own foundation, which is a faith. Yeah, yeah. no, no. I, I I wonder about this, and I feel like this is like part of Laruel's rhetorical tech. You know, sort of positing philosophy as the clever older brother of religion. That like you know, kind of a we you know a a, a new a new modality of like, and again, all the words are wrong, but like rationalism, enlightenment has to conquer as well. Some of, but it, it's interesting. Philosophy isn't like, and it's it's not like theology has to be vanquished either. Laruel is like, you know, once once a superposition between all these valences, if he if he can, you know, um, but. I, at least it seems to me, and it, and it seems to me that like he's often suggesting that, you know, whereas religion is wants to, is going to be aggressive towards science, right? Um, although although in some cases, like I think it's obvious, at least Nietzsche shows us this, how like certain religious aspects are are like you know of of spirit of mental structure are required for like you know science to take off, right? So there's like there's an in, there's an engine there that's like building itself up, right? right. Um, and I, and I think we were sort of talking about like this topological model of kind of like the different disciplines or faculties, and you know, kind of how induction is this diamond core, you know, sort of slowly growing by accumulation, and induction is a more kind of fuzzy thing kind of around it, and there's kind of the abductive kind of void space of hypotheses in the in the space around that. Um, but I mean, all, all to say is that it's like sort of like all the different faculties and you can kind of name them like, uh, you know, like we're saying kind of topologically or like kind of, you know, by point of view, right. Which I think is one of the things about religion and science and, and philosophy. And I mean, honestly, you can, you know, it's, it's art and politics and all these different modalities of like these points of view on the world. And there's as many of them as, as there are human beings, you know what I mean? Or, or, or and as you know and in a relativistic way it's it's uh fields of reference right it's um frames of reference apologize 
No, that's that's great. But I and I was going to say it's even with an individual, you're like cycling through frames of reference, even in a single day. You know, different languages, different points of view on the world, and different uniforms and you know machines you're part of, and and we're subjectified um, differently, right? We're um, Guattari points this out, you know, in a very interesting way about it's it's you know these various stages or states of subjectification don't don't add up together into one whole we there's a performative aspect to it there's a there's the hailing of 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 the subject um in these various modalities of the unconscious they uh they they show that we're sort of a you know a motley crew if you will and you know we can and this is his point about pragmatics being needing to be taken seriously by the linguists and by the, the analysts um, insofar as it details these, these, uh, these, these collective assemblages we enter into uh, and yeah, fall back no, these, out of. These, these singular amplitudes of thought or, right. or these, yeah. you know, like these, these uh, high, you know, these fluctuations of the soul to kind of like new intensities. Um, and I think I love the pragmatics and just to connect that back to Laura, well, real quick. And, you know, obviously we can wind down, but like, I was going to try to ask about like a practical utopia, this thing Laura Wells trying to tell us about, like if we can calm down and superpose all the amplitudes from all the different, you know, like siloed disciplines, you know, like we can, we, we, we can, I don't know. I, I guess that's the, the thing we can, uh, we can unlock, ways of thinking that we that we can't even see yet you know and that that will that's right yeah, the unexpected like, like it'll be yeah gen, the genuinely unexpected and i think that's like both exciting and and a, a little terrifying but like um but but yeah i don't know i mean i think larwell proposes something genuinely uncomfortable i think especially at the at, you know at at the level of like the rigor of his thinking i'll just right. put it that yeah. way um, yeah, I mean it's it's both rigorous in in, in in a formal sense, and then in the the sense of of uh, you know perhaps reading him um, in general, it it may seem unrigorous by comparison, but uh, a lot of that has to do with preparing oneself for the thought experimentation he is proposing we undertake the the dice throw the the launching of the conceptual particles in the collider within this mate, this thought nice. matrix, right? That that's the experiment we have to prepare ourselves for. And to bring it back to, we can end with pragmatics, you know, the, there's something equally, but only apparently threatening for philosophy in the uh, analytic side of non-philosophy, of course, which analyzes philosophy's resistance, but um, and obviously in the theoretical aspect of, of, of articulating what can be done to philosophy outside of its regime, but more specifically in the pragmatic aspect, that that's where philosophy, uh, we see philosophy transformed, uh, rehandled according to a generic thought matrix. Um, that's when it's perhaps threatened the most because it's, 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 and this is laid out in philosophy and non-philosophy initially with all the different stages of 
not just preparation but execution of philosophies recasting um, but here specifically in in the effects of the experiment of superposing um, philosophy and science or philosophy and other knowledges within eminence that's where that's that's the possibility of um, pragmatically transforming and producing these effects of the the collision of 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 these particles of these to 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 sort of unlock the the essence of their waveform you know that's that's where the pragmatics of non-standard philosophy leads no i i love that i think we've built our thought super collider and hopefully unlock some some new new soul fluctuations right um no i i, I yeah i think that's good uh you ready to take a break yeah that sounds good